There's a gospel song. It's called Thanks to Calvary. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I will give you the lyrics. Today I went down to the place where I used to go. Today I saw the same old crowd I knew before. And when they asked me what had happened, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't come here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, I'm not the man I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. And as tears ran down my face, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't come here anymore. Then we went down to the house where we used to live. My little boy ran behind the door like so many times before. And I said, son, you don't need to be afraid. You've got a new daddy now. Thanks to Calvary, we don't live here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, I'm not the dad I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. And as the tears ran down my face, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, we don't live here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, I'm not the man I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. And as tears ran down my face, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't come here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, we don't live here anymore. Now, some folks may like that song, and perhaps you've heard it sung, especially if you're a Southern Gospel music fan. However, what I want us to understand is that many of the people we know can't sing that song. Our work associates, some of our family, our neighbors, our friends, some of them can't sing that song. We will see why in a few moments. Here's my question. Do we really care that we have people in our life that do not know Christ? You know, often we will pray for those that have physical ailments, and I believe that is fine, and we should pray for those, but how much time do we spend praying for those who are spiritually dead? Now, it's one thing if they reject the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's quite another if we never bother to tell them the truth. Now, this series that we've been going through is titled, Who's Your One? And oftentimes we consider one as being insignificant. Seriously, I don't know anybody that wants to eat just one Oreo cookie. Okay? We don't do that. Or how many people actually stop to pick up one penny anymore? There may be a few. Some of you are like, well, that depends on if it's heads up or not. But... But we, we don't do those things. We don't pick up one penny. But the Bible often speaks of one, just one. We see this throughout Scripture, right? The Bible speaks of one. It speaks of one pearl of great price. It speaks of one lost sheep. It talks of one wayward son. I believe often we overlook the one. We have heard the saying often that you can't see the forest through the trees. But I think for Christians, sometimes it's the opposite, right? 
We can't see the tree because of the forest. We need to refuse to overlook the value of one. I believe our scripture will make this clear for us today. In just a minute, we're going to look at two passages of scripture. They are John chapter 1, verses 45 through 46, and then we'll skip down and read verse 49. Then we'll flip over to the book of Matthew chapter 13 and read verses 45 and 46. So if you want to go ahead and find those, feel free to do so before we read. I want to focus on the one for just a minute. We've all heard the story of the starfish, probably. Uh, Maybe you've looked it up. Maybe uh, another pastor has used it. But it goes like this. One day a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy hurriedly picking up and gently throwing things into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, Young man, what are you doing? The boy replied, Throwing starfish back into the ocean. The surf is up. The tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they'll die. The man laughed to himself and said, Don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and hundreds of starfish? You can't make any difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish and threw it into the surf. Then smiling at the man, he said, I made a difference to that one. I want us to understand what focusing on one can do. One invitation to church, one message of hope, one neighbor, one coworker, one friend, one family member. Here's my question. Can you name one person who has come to Christ through your invitation or witness? In your entire lifetime, can you name one person that has come to Christ through your invitation or witness? May we focus on the one, because we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, according to Romans 1.16. The Apostle Paul, in that same message, indicated he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at our text This morning, John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46. First, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. The book of John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, and then we'll skip down to verse 49. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The next day, actually, let me skip down. I started at the wrong spot. Philip found Nathaniel said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of of God. You are the king of Israel. Back to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 45, I believe, and 46, Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant 
in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May it penetrate our hearts and lives. Your servants are listening today. Lord, as we think of our one, as we think of those people that are in our life that do not know Christ, may we have a burden and a passion to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May your word penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. May your word change us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first thing I want us to see this morning is this. Commit to being an intentional witness. Commit to being an intentional witness. Did you notice the first words of verse 45? It says, Philip found Nathaniel. Now, that requires some intentionality on Philip's part. It means that Philip was actively looking for Nathaniel. And why was he looking for Nathaniel? So he could witness to him. This has been the foundational principle for Christian expansion ever since. Followers of Jesus bear witness of him to other people who in turn become disciples, followers of Jesus, and the process is then repeated. They then bear witness to someone else who in turn becomes a follower of Jesus, who then bears witness to someone else who in turn becomes a follower of Jesus. That's how it has happened since the beginning of Christ coming and him having followers. Being a witness for Christ doesn't just happen. It takes some intentionality. It requires that you stick to a commitment of sharing the gospel. Now, why was Philip committed to being a witness to to Nathaniel? Well, for one, he was excited because he's saying, listen, Remember how we studied the law and prophets and we read about the Messiah that was to come? I found him. That's why he said, I found him. This is what we've been waiting for all this time. Now, listen, I'm I'm not a Cubs fan. In fact, I'm a I'm a Yankees fan. But I was in Chicago in 2016. When the Cubs won the World Series for the first time in 108 years, I watched as grown elderly men cried tears of joy because it seemed almost unbelievable that the Cubs had finally won. Some older men, they were recounting stories, remembered going to games as young children, always hoping that one day the Cubs would win it all. And now, here they are in their, in their 80s, and they got to see something they had waited for their entire life. And there was just something about that as I was watching people talk and 
and the partying and all that, it just tugged at my heart. There's this huge party that night in the streets, and people were going wild because their team had finally won. Now, check this out. These guys, Philip and Nathaniel, had not just waited a lifetime. We're talking lifetimes for the Messiah to come. And so Philip is excited to share what had happened with Nathaniel. Now, if you were a Cubs fan, when the Cubs won the World Series, you were excited. Right? Finally. You were telling everybody. Everybody, and you, you probably put the, the W on your vehicle and, and a huge flag and your driver. You're letting everybody know. My Cubs, they finally won. As if you own the team or something. But anyway, right? Yeah, even told Bill Sadler. Finally. I mean, all those Cardinal fans, you had to really tell them. Finally, the Cubs had won. These guys. There's excitement. Let me direct your attention back two verses before we started reading. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. (laughs) Right? Didn't say Philip found him. Jesus found Philip. What's he say to him? Same thing he said to all his disciples. Follow me. Philip was committed to being an intentional witness because Christ found him listen the facts are that when we come to know Christ it was probably through some sort of human instrument someone shared the gospel with us maybe a mother or a father or a friend or a pastor and we should be very grateful for those that God has used to bring us the gospel of Jesus Christ but whoever brought us the gospel did not convert us because no person can give us a new heart and a right spirit we are only saved because the Lord alone worked a wondrous miracle of regeneration in our life he quickened us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and if the Lord has not turned us then we are still on the broad road to destruction. Now, I know Philip says we found him there in verse 45, but we can't find him unless he first finds us. If he has not found us like the shepherd finds his lost sheep, then we're still wandering around in darkness, the darkness of despair and sin, because the sheep will never find the shepherd unless the shepherd first finds the sheep. Now, here's what we must get, is that there are many in this world who have never found Christ. There are people of wisdom who have never become wise to salvation. There are people who are rich who do not possess heavenly treasure. There are people in positions of power and authority who even lorded over others who do not know the Lord of hosts. And when I think of the fact that there are people on this earth far greater than I am, I marvel at the fact that God would choose me. That Christ would 
redeem me. The Holy Spirit would seal me and regenerate me. The fact that God has made us the special subject of his grace is not a cause for me to well up or you to well up with pride, but shed, instead should cause us to love him all the more. If we love him, know that he first loved us with an everlasting love. And he drew us to himself. And this should cause us to bring forth fruit for the kingdom. This is exactly what we see Philip doing. He says, I, I found him. I found the one that we've been looking for all this time. Jesus actually found him. And he came to trust Christ because Christ found him. And so therefore, he immediately sets out to share his love for Christ with others. Here's the question that we're forced to ask ourselves as we read this passage of Scripture. And we see that immediately when Christ finds Philip, Philip immediately has a passion to share that with someone else. Here's the question. Do we do the same? Do we do the same? What I'm saying to you is that we must commit to being an intentional witness because you're excited about knowing Christ as your Savior and because you love Him and are thankful that He found you and as He wants to use you to find other people. You need to have others join you on your mission and we need to be pointing others to the life-transforming power of the gospel. Anyone who receives Christ's identity and calls themselves a Christian will also embrace Christ's mission, which is to share him with other people. Part of this commitment to being an intentional witness is to go and tell. And that's the second thing I want to share with you. So we're going to be an intentional witness. We go and tell. We looked at the fact that Philip found Nathaniel, which means he went looking for him. And when he found him, he had something to say to him, right? He wasn't just like, hey, I found you. <laughs> A lot of times we see this, this passage and it gets preached and, and it focuses on the come and see part, which we'll get to in a minute. But before he could say come and see, he had to go and tell. Philip finds Nathaniel and says to him, we found him. We need to tell others about Christ. I do not understand the mentality of some professing Christians that seem to want to keep Christ all to themselves. If we truly know Christ and Christ truly died for our sins, and if he truly saves us from an eternal hell, which is what we claim, and we truly believe that, then we should tell other people that. Why do we act like the gospel is some sort of secret? That if we share it with others, that we're somehow going to exhaust heaven and there's not going to be enough left for us? Why do we act like that? Like somehow heaven's going to be exhausted. I I can't share this with so-and-so because, you know, they... It might exhaust heaven. I don't, I don't know about you, but I like to sometimes go to buffets, right? 
Why do we like to do that? Well, so we can be a bunch of sinners and, and eat more than we ought to, right? But we go there because we're not going to exhaust it, right? If you like Chinese food, you like to go to the Chinese buffet. If you like pizza, then you like to go to the pizza buffet. If you like everything, then maybe you like to go to Golden Corral where there's all these options and you could drink of the chocolate fountain or whatever, right? Why do we do that? Because that's what we like. The gospel is like a buffet. It's like a banquet. And you can eat as much as you want and there will still be plenty left. We must understand that God is infinite. That God is omnipotent. And all of the blessings of God are inexhaustible. We need to spread far and wide the gospel invitation. If we truly love Christ, then we follow in Christ's example. And we go after lost sheep until we finally find them. We tell others that they can avoid hell because Christ has paid the ransom for all who place their trust. In him. A few months back was the 75th anniversary of D Day. If you watch any of the history or you've heard any of the accounts of those that maybe had firsthand experience with Normandy, you know how horrific it must have been. It's difficult to imagine and it's hard to hear the stories, but as terrible as it was, even more terrible is the sight to those who can actually see sinners as they really are in the sight of God. Our streets in Washington, Illinois, are full of unregenerate. Many of us live next door to those that don't know Christ. Some of us live in the same house as those who are condemned to hell. Some may even sleep in the same room as them. They are the walking dead. They're living, but they're spiritually dead. We're surrounded by them. And we must go and tell We must plead with our spouses, with our brothers, with our sisters, with our parents, with our children, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our co-workers. We must plead with them and we must plead for them. God forbid that we be eternally separated from those who are so near and dear to us on this earth. Pray for them night and day. Do not rest. And pray that they will have no rest until they're safe. Plead with all of those you come in contact with. Listen, people are perishing. Will you just let them perish? I was reading a sermon of Charles Spurgeon's this week, and I found something I wanted to share with you. An earnest minister said to his people one Sabbath, I'm going this week on a mission to the heathen. The deacons looked at one another, for the pastor had not mentioned the matter to them, and the members thought, we're about to lose our dear minister. But whatever has made him think of going as a missionary to the heathen? And while these thoughts were passing through their minds, he quietly added, but I'm not going out of this town in order to be a missionary. And there's no need for anybody to go out of town in order to be a missionary to the heathen. 
There they are. Brothers and sisters all around you. And you are the missionaries. There is your work. Go and do it. And may God bless you in it. And so many precious immortal souls through you be led to find Jesus and to trust in him for salvation. For his name and mercy's sake. Who is your one? Go and tell. What do we go and tell? We go and tell the gospel to a lost and dying world. Notice four things about Philip going and telling. First, he was joyful, right? It's called the good news for a reason. Because it's good news. The fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and Christ provides life, that is good news. Philip says, we've, we've found him. The one we've been looking for. We found him. Jesus meets the needs of the craving heart. Secondly, notice God's plan for man in this world are recorded in the scripture. We have God's word for direction. So when we go and tell, use the Bible to go and tell. Thirdly, notice that both Philip and Nathaniel knew the scripture. They were familiar with the scripture. So when we go and tell, familiarize yourself with God's word. In other words, know the word of God. Spend time studying it, memorizing it, knowing it. Fourthly, Jesus is the Messiah. When you go and tell, focus on Christ. So first, commit to being an intentional witness. Second, part of being an intentional witness is to go and tell. Third, a third part of that, or a second part of that is come and see. Come and see, and that's our third point this morning. Come and see. Come and see is a response to an objection. Right? Philip goes and he tells Nathaniel, and there was this objection. What's he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Let me be clear. When we go and tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be objections. Nathaniel was gripped by prejudice. Right? He immediately dismisses what Philip says to him. He has no intention on accepting or believing what Philip is saying. After all, why should Nathaniel believe what Philip is saying? Listen, many voices in this world promise some path to fulfillment. However, their claims are discovered to be false, and they leave the human heart empty. Nathaniel had allowed himself to be influenced by the prejudice of the world. Nathaniel's objection arose out of ignorance and prejudice. He did not see any way that anything good could possibly come from Nazareth. There's no way. It'd be like, you know, today, you're here in Washington, like, well, can anything good come from sunny land can anything good come from East Peoria can anything good come from Peoria I mean what about Chicago that must be terrible 
right, gripped by prejudice. You know what prejudice does? It disregards the wrong in yourself and in your own place, whether it be a city, a homeland, your work, your church. Disregards if there's anything wrong there. Now we got it. We got it all straight. You know. Prejudice says nothing good can come from that place, while overlooking personal wrongs, shortcomings, and weaknesses and errors. So I would say that Nathaniel's objection is a pretty strong objection. And we will face strong objections when you go to share the gospel. But that should not stop us because our one matters. You see, Philip could have just said, oh, you know what, you're right, Nathaniel. And walked away. How often is that our response, right? You try to share the gospel with someone and they come up with some sort of cool little answer or cool little response to you and it sounds so good and they sound so intelligent and you're just like, oh yeah, okay. And you just walk off. That's the end. I've had conversations with atheists. They try to use their brain to, you know... I'm super smart. I'm an atheist. That makes me super smart. And they'll try to come up with cool little sayings and try to throw you off. And so often we, we look at things like that and, and, and we just, well, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to share anymore. How often do we do that? That's not what Philip does. Right? He just responds very simply. Yeah, come and see. I love it. Nathaniel has an objection based on ignorance and prejudice. And Philip says, I'll come and see. It's an invitation, right? He doesn't say go and see. What's he say? Come and see. It says, I'm going with you. We'll do this together. Come and see. Philip's not going to argue with him. He just invites him. And when we meet objections, no matter the sin, that should not keep us from giving an invitation. The way to lead someone to Christ is not necessarily through argumentation, but by confronting them with Christ. Honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for sin. In connection with come and see I want to issue you a challenge this morning. And that is this. Each one, bring one. I'm asking you to make a commitment to your one. First, will you invite your one to either breakfast, lunch, or dinner this year? You can even invite them to the church picnic if you want to. And when you have a chance, tell them your story and memorize some scripture and share the gospel with them because it is the gospel that has the power to bring salvation, not your testimony. So invite one to a meal. Our community is perishing. Washington, Illinois is perishing. Wherever you live, it is perishing. So that's one. Invite someone to breakfast, lunch, or dinner 
this year. Secondly, the second commitment of come and see is invite one family in your neighborhood to your home. It's not that hard to go to a neighbor's house, knock on their door, and just say, hey, I or we, if you're not single, would like to invite you over to have dinner at our house. And then while you're at the table, you can say, I appreciate you coming. And while we're here, I want to share how I came to know Christ as my Savior. And the same as before includes Scripture. If you say, well, Pastor, I can't cook. I want to invite somebody over for a meal. I can't cook. I'm afraid. Give me a call. I'm no chef, but I'll cook for you. I can smoke some meat. Okay? I can make you a brisket or pulled pork or whatever. Say, hey, I, I need some help. We're talking about your one. Invite them over. I hope you don't come to church to hear a sermon or to see friends. I trust you come to embrace the truth of God's word and make a decision. Will you invite one to a meal? Will you have them over to your house? Last one. Invite one unchurched or one unsaved person to church with you. Look around you. Just look around. We have any empty seats in here? If you have an empty seat nearby you, raise your hand. Go ahead. It's okay. You can raise your hand. We're not getting all charismatic. Just raise your hand. All right? So, Bunchy, raise your hand. In fact, all of you did. So, well, how many does our church hold? 130, roughly. Maxed out. You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? Because I've come into this sanctuary, and I've sat in a pew, and I put a hymnal next to me, and then I sat, and I put one next to me, and I sat all the way down. So I measured how many we could fit in a pew with some space. So roughly 130. There are close to 17,000 people living in Washington, Illinois. Sometimes when new churches get started and, and things like that, people, people get all ruffled. Well, why are they starting a new church in Washington? Don't we have enough churches in Washington? I mean, five years ago or whatever, when we had a tornado, I heard the mayor say that the reason why people weren't hurt is because everybody was in church. Trust me, 17,000 people are not in church today. Okay? They're not. And if you think they are, then you are fooled. There is no way. You think there's 17,000 believers in Washington? This is just Washington. I'm not talking about Metamora, Eureka, East Peoria. Just Washington. Now, will you think just radically with me for just a moment? Suppose each one of us brought three guests. Next, Let's say we did that next week. Let's say that each one of us showed up next week with three guests. We would max our church out. That's not the challenge. That would just be inviting people. That would be nothing. We need some Phillips to invite some Nathaniels. We need some Andrews to bring their brother Peter. I'm asking you to invite one person. Each one bring one. 
I'm asking you to invite someone, invest in someone, and then introduce them to someone. Invite them to church. Invite them to your home. Invest in them. Have a meal with them. And then introduce them to Jesus. Listen, it's not your business as to what they do with Jesus once you introduce them to Jesus. But please at least introduce them to Jesus. I can only think of one thing that could make the passing of a friend or a loved one absolutely unbearable, and that would be this. If you never told them about Jesus. I don't want to ever stand at a coffin and cry out to God, Oh God, have mercy on me. For I never told them about your son. Never. Go and tell. Come and see. Fourthly, it's worth it. It's worth it. There are eight parables in the Matthew chapter 13. I want to focus in on these two verses we read earlier for just a few minutes. This morning we said so far we need to commit to being an intentional witness. We do this by going and telling and, and we ask others to come and see. We said we need to invite, invest, and introduce. Invite people, invest in them, and introduce them to Jesus. Now I want us to see it's all worth it. We share the gospel because we want to see people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. When relating this to our one, we share the gospel because we want to see see our one come into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that we will be a part of God's kingdom. I want to share with you three quick ways from these verses in Matthew that the kingdom is worth it. First, it is worth searching for. It is worth Searching for. We saw that the merchant sought the pearls, and the kingdom is worth searching for. People may actually have to search to find the kingdom of God. Now, this is not true for everyone, because if we read the verses preceding Matthew 13 45, we would see that some seem to find the kingdom almost accidentally, like the man plowing in the former parable. He's not seeking the kingdom, but he finds it. However, some require an intense search. In other words, some people will explore many different avenues to try to find peace that only God can give to them. They may even explore many different religions before finally arriving at the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is that once the search is started, the kingdom can be found. This is the point of Acts 17 26 and 27 when it says and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us did you get that God placed you places people where they are in Intentionally, because he's determined a lot of periods and boundaries that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. But he's not far off from each of us. He's placed you where you are so that you will seek God and perhaps feel your way to him. 
I like to think of every conversation as a divine appointment for this very reason. God has placed me in that conversation to represent him. So some might feel their way towards him. Jesus is worth searching for. And we don't need to be afraid of sharing that with others. We don't need to be afraid of saying, hey, have you, have you ever tried to read the scripture? Have you ever tried to investigate and look at God's word? Have you ever tried this? Many are searching for significance and meaning, and the answer to all of life is found in Jesus Christ, and he is worth it. Secondly, not only is the kingdom worth searching for, but it's worth sacrificing for. Stop and think about this. People make sacrifices on a pretty consistent basis for many different endeavors. For example, my family hopes to go to Disneyland next year, particularly because the SBC convention is held in Orlando next year. And it may be our only shot to ever go. Well, it's going to take sacrifice, right? It means that we have to find ways that we're going to save money. To be able to go. It may mean that we don't buy something we would normally buy. It may mean that we have to go out to eat less or whatever it takes. People make sacrifices all the time. Some make sacrifices for worthy causes like taking a stand against abortion or taking a stand against the pornography epidemic. Others fight against sex trafficking and abuse. Those are all worthy pursuits. However, the kingdom shines brighter than all of these things. There's nothing that even compares to the reign of God in our hearts. That is why in the parable, once the pearl is found, the man sells all he has to purchase it. Here is what we must understand. We should rejoice at such a privilege as, as this is such a great deal that we can sell all that we have to know him. Jesus is inestimable in value, which makes those who have him rich. When we have Christ, we have enough. We must be willing to leave everything to follow him. Whatever stands in opposition to Christ or in competition with Christ for our love and our service, no matter how dear to us it might be, we must quit it. Now, I want to be clear that you can't buy the kingdom. You don't pay money for it, and you cannot earn it. The glory and the treasure of the gospel is just this. We do nothing to lay hold of it. Jesus does all that's necessary. And we receive his rule and his blessing by grace alone, through faith alone. The supreme treasure of the kingdom is the gospel of the kingdom. And it's worth the search. It's worth the sacrifice. And finally, it is worth securing. We don't enjoy the reign of God from a distance. We search. We may search and even be willing to make sacrifice without completing the tr transaction. In other words, we can make a sacrifice and we can search for the kingdom and still eventually return to our own former desires. But once we secure it, we live in the reality of that decision. 
Look at the parable. The pearl merchant knew he had made a great deal. He knew it. You ever done that? You ever buy something and you're like, I stole this thing. I have, man, I made a deal. I thought that once about soda. I know that's hard to believe, but the store was having a sale on Dr. Pepper. And on the Dr. Pepper bottle was a coupon. And they were doubling the coupon. So a coupon was 50 cents. And the Dr. Pepper was on sale for 99 cents for a two-liter bottle. And so I was buying the Dr. Pepper, cutting the coupon off, going back in and buying another one. And then it was cost me like six cents for a two-liter bottle of soda. It's like, I stole that. What a deal. Right? We feel that way sometimes. That's nothing compared to the kingdom of God. The gospel is our adequacy. That is why the kingdom is such a great price. It tells us that Jesus relieves our inadequacies. Jesus atones for our greatest inadequacy of all time, our sin, by bearing the punishment that we deserve for our failures. He places us in his family and we are to bear one another's burdens. You see, the gospel is to be our supreme treasure. And I'm not so sure that we fully understand that. We say things like this, right? Well, if the sun is shining, I'll have a good day today. If I get some peace and quiet, I'll have a good day today. I'll have a good day if I get to hang out with my friends. You know what a good day is? When I get to sleep in. If I make this sale, it'll be a good day. Whatever it is. But the gospel is to be our supreme treasure. So when we don't hang with our friends and the sun is not shining, when we don't make that sale, when there is no peace and quiet in our day, it is still a good day because we have the supreme treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the way it's supposed to be. Every day is a good day when you have the gospel. Your worst day is the best day because you have the gospel. It is our treasure. You see, when we treasure the gospel, it makes a difference in the very course of our life. We now seek and meditate on God's truth. We take time to pray and we give thanks to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We now live by gospel standards. We now seek the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We now want to be more patient and be more kind and be more gentle and be more forgiving and be more merciful. We willingly make sacrifices to practice our conviction that the kingdom is our greatest treasure. We look for and we find ways to advance the kingdom of God. We use our God-given talents to extend the kingdom at home and at work and in our neighborhood and in our church. If you are a Christian, you have found the pearl of great price. Now, with that said, will you commit to being an intentional witness? Will you go and tell? Will you have others come and see? Because 
it is worth it because you have the treasure. Now I've found over the years when it comes to sharing the gospel or being an intentional witness, we come up with a lot of excuses. I'm going to take a few moments to address some of these excuses. I genuinely believe that our failure and refusal to share the gospel is sinful. You say, well, what are you saying, Pastor? You mean if I don't share the gospel, it's sin? Yes, that's why I said. So let's recognize the excuses and let's repent of them. Number one, spiritual lethargy. Spiritual lethargy. We become spiritually lethargic when we fail to obey the mandates of Scripture which tells us to make disciples. When we fail to obey, then we will not grow, which will inevitably lead to a di- diminished desire to share Christ with other people. And we're just like, yeah, we just, this is just what we do. Some of us have been doing the same thing for 30, 40, 50 years. It's just what you do spiritually. And it doesn't include sharing the gospel. Number two, growing inclusiveness. What do I mean by that? Well, it is the saying that all religions lead to God. That's the prevailing opinion of our day. And has crept into the church. Sometimes this view affirms Jesus is not the only way to salvation, but he can be found in other good religions. It's a subtle belief that somehow good followers will make it to heaven outside of the true Christian conversion. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And there is absolutely no one that will come to the Father unless it is through me. No one gets to heaven unless it's through the Son. Number three, disbelief in hell. I was once going to share the gospel on the streets when I lived near Philadelphia. We had this little... Uh, thing set up where we were doing uh, street witnessing and the guy says don't mention hell some people don't don't even believe in hell or they say hell's symbolic this undermines the urgency of placing one's faith in Christ alone one must escape the wrath of God which will be poured out on those who do not trust in his son Jesus Christ Jesus is the only refuge from an eternal hell number four busyness I wonder how often our own busyness keeps us from sharing the gospel. It looks like this. I don't have time to engage in conversation. I'm in a hurry. I don't have time to stop and talk. I don't don't have time. I have too much to do. The unchurched The unbeliever needs us to tell them about Jesus. You say, well, i got a huge to-do list. Who cares? At the top of that to-do list should be sharing the gospel. So i got somewhere i got to be. At the top of where you need to be should be sharing the gospel with someone. What priority do you give in your life to reach the lost? Number five, fear of rejection. Research shows that only one in four unchurched persons will be resistant to faith discussions. One in four. That means 75% are open to a faith discussion. 
The few with an antagonistic attitude aren't rejecting you personally. Their anger is merely a reflection of something in their past. We must not allow the fear of rejection to keep us from sharing. Furthermore, why do we even fear rejection when we're sharing with someone? Especially when it's someone we don't know. It's not like, oh, you're going to see them again. I'm afraid of what so-and-so, I'm afraid of what that cashier at Walmart might think of me if I try to share the gospel. Who cares? She's going to get on the PA system. Everybody listen up. Bill Sadler shared the gospel with me. Stay away from him. They don't do that. Number six, a desire to be tolerant. We've bought into the lie that everyone has to be intolerant or has to be tolerant. The gospel is, in some sense, intolerant. The one true God insists that there can be no other gods, that he is a jealous God. The Christian message speaks of a narrow way, and there's no other name under heaven which you can get to heaven. And he says, I am the way. It's intolerant. Number seven, losing the habit of witnessing. Maybe you've never got the habit in the first place, or maybe you did, and for many reasons you might have quit witnessing. Witnessing is a discipline. It can be regained. Number eight, lack of accountability. Who is holding you accountable? When you have someone holding you accountable, it can increase your zeal for witnessing. Number nine, failure to invite. Can I ask you an honest question? When was the last time you invited an unchurched person to church? Have you offered to take someone or meet them at church? It's such a simple gesture that can have a significant outcome. Number 10, a church not intent on, re- not intent on reaching the lost. As a church, we must be intentional. It said it takes 85 church members to reach one unsaved person. What a terrible ratio. By that standard, our church is in big trouble. We must regain their, our passion for the lost. Listen, I'm going to give a public invitation right now. Because I am sick and tired of playing church. Because for far too long, we've become good at playing church. You know the game, right? You go through your week like you always do. You get up on Sunday morning, and you go to church, and then you repeat the cycle. You go through your week, you do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, never stepping outside of your box to ever share Christ with anyone. And we need to stop playing games. So I want your undivided attention because this is a public invitation. So here it is. How many of you? Jesus' name would make a public, unashamed commitment to be an intentional witness, to invite one person to church, one person to a meal, and do all you can to introduce one person to Jesus this year. And so I'm asking, if you are willing to do that, you're going to invest in them, You're going to invite them, and you're going to introduce them. If you will say, yes, pastor, I will do that. I will make every attempt to do that. 
I will ask one person to church. I'll invest in them by having a meal with them. And I will do all I can to introduce them to Jesus. If you are willing to do that, then I want you to do something right now. I want you to simply stand up with every eye opened, every head up. If you say, yes, I'm willing to do that, I just want you to stand up. If you're not, that's fine. Stay seated. I just want you to stand. You say, I'm willing to do that. I will invest. Don't do it unless you mean it. You say, well, why? Don't we usually bow our head and close our eyes and raise our hand and blah, 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 blah? And this is not to embarrass anyone. If you say, I'm standing on the inside, that's fine. You say, why are you standing up? Because of this part right here. I want you to look around. Just look around. Take time. Look around. I'm telling you to do something. It's okay. Look around. Look at everybody that's standing. Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be willing to ask these people that are standing, who's your one? Because I am sick of holding you accountable. It's time for you to hold one another accountable. Our church isn't going to grow because, oh, pastor, preach a good sermon. It's going to grow because you're reaching the lost. So ask yourself, will you be intentional? Will you be accountable? Will you be a true, mature disciple maker for Jesus Christ? With you standing, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you.